unprecedented times. Such has been the clarion call of this year. But just how unprecedented are these times? Whilst a global pandemic might not be an annual issue, many of the crises we are facing, from the erosion of civil liberties to debt crises, or from fears around technology to the shifts in geopolitics as major powers flex their muscles, these are the products of trends and concerns we know only too well, and which a state of global emergency has amplified. Even the pandemic itself was no surprise to those in the know. So what are these trends? Where have they come from? And what kind of path can we expect them to put us on? This is 2020 Vision, and I am Elizabeth Dykstra-McCarthy, with a podcast brought to you by Foreign Brief, in partnership with the Fletcher School, about how this year has accelerated global trends and a state of global crisis has made them that much more visible. And this year, those impacts have been brutal, from record wildfires in the Western United States, the Brazilian Amazon, and in Australia, to seemingly endless storms and hurricanes queuing up the Atlantic, fires in Australia, killing at least 18 people, forcing tens of thousands from their homes. What I see here is just yet another indicator of how quickly the Arctic It'll start is changing. Cooler. I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> We may be as weary of coronavirus updates as we are by the new and shocking climate change stories that fill our news cycles. 2020 was marked by unprecedented wildfires in Australia, the American Northwest and the Russian Arctic. The last year has seen both terrifying degrees of inaction and the strengthening of climate undertakings. The former was presided over by a sitting president in the White House who appointed a climate denier to head the National Climate Assessment in November and drove a slew of environmental deregulation. He has repealed and weakened regulations that protect water, air and land, and this includes repealing the Obama-era clean water rule, weakening protection... Yet hope can be found in the commitments of international, national and subnational governments alongside a panoply of private sector companies to carbon reduction targets. There is reason for both optimism and outrage, in the words of Christiana Figueres, the former executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. COVID-19 reminds us that humankind should launch a green revolution and move faster to create a green way of development. Our government promised to legally bind Canada to its commitment of net zero emissions by 2050. This morning, we delivered on that promise. In other news, the South Korean government has laid out its blueprint to make the country carbon neutral by 2050. Making climate change a top priority, U.S. President Joe Biden signed a raft of executive orders Wednesday. Clean energy policies he promised would be a boon to the U.S. economy and an engine for job growth. Yet, with the apocalyptic air of 2020 still clouding our vision, our failure to prevent this particular show-stopping global crisis seems but the canary in the coal mine for the climate crisis around the corner. Back in April, the COVID-19 pandemic and a price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia torpedoed U.S. crude prices into negative territory and drove Brent crude to below $20 per barrel. mighty slump in demand for oil. But while it's still pumping out of American soil and nowhere left to store it, panic has ensued. The trajectory, I think, really depends US on how quickly COVID-19 is under control and demand and transport and normal life resumes. The pandemic and its lockdowns, the oil crisis, the ensuing economic fallout from both, and political frustration and instability around the world are not isolated events. They have catalyzed and accelerated one another. Industry lockdowns and travel restrictions threaten the price of oil. 
The oil crisis was a result of fears around the commodity's price, as well as the dynamics of OPEC in the US, jockeying for space in and authority over the oil market. Oil prices had already been teetering due to a greater investment in renewables and decreasing reliance on fossil fuels. Tensions had been bubbling under the surface, and the COVID-19 crisis turned up the heat. That has influenced investors' long-term profitability calculations, pushing many to take greater consideration of the social, health and environmental implications of their investments. So I think we were very close to tipping points in understanding the need to sort of commit to a zero-carbon or low-carbon future before the pandemic hit. But when it did, and you're dealing with prices, oil and gas prices, uh, where they are a whole phalanx of planned fossil fuel infrastructure deals become completely uneconomic. They were teetering on the edge of being uneconomic anyway, but now that, that's disappeared. And so investors look at that and they think, no. To speak with us today, not about the looming dangers of global warming, but about what we can learn from the COVID crisis and how to apply that to strengthening our climate response is Rachel Kite. Kite served as a special representative of the UN Secretary General and was CEO of Sustainable Energy for All. She was previously the World Bank Group Vice President and Special Envoy for Climate Change and is currently the Dean of the Fletcher School. So the message is, in this moment of absolute crisis, if we can just look short-term and medium-term, we don't have to dogleg, we don't have to do things that are harmful now and based on the old fossil fuel economy and then pivot. We can actually make the right kind of recovery investments now and it will put us in a better place for the future. Of course, with total COVID deaths worldwide surpassing 2 million, with economies still shuttered and with a light at the end of the tunnel that seems to lengthen with every passing month, it seems understandable that climate issues have taken a back seat. After all, a catastrophe a decade away will always feel less pressing than the catastrophe today. Yet, in many ways, this is the perfect moment to capitalise on the systemic adjustments to our institutions, our economies and our society. In Washington, where the White House and Congress reached a deal early this morning on the economic rescue package that dwarfs the entire national budget of the United the States. The UK government has unveiled a 33 billion euro plan to save jobs. British Chancellor... I'll lay out my Build Back Better Recovery Plan. It'll make historic investments in infrastructure, that Build Back Better Plan. Infrastructure, manufacturing, innovation, research and development, and clean energy. Investments in a caregiving economy. You don't want to be putting public money into the past, right? You've got to put public money into the future. And so in a number of developed economies, we're looking at, you know, enormous recovery packages. That money cannot go into things which are going to be compromised and things which aren't going to produce a return and are the past. So that money has to go into the infrastructure, the training, the new jobs, the incentives for renewable energy infrastructure. And this isn't always going to look as clear cut as the climate agenda, pumping money into climate solutions. Building Back Better is a holistic approach, combining carbon-cutting priorities with infrastructure and employment. You need to be taking the public money that you're going to be using in order to keep unemployment up, to create new jobs, to transition these communities to different jobs and to different employment pathways. That money is going to have to be spent. Better spend it creatively now rather than having to spend money to prop up a, a, an industry that is absolutely not economic and is never going to come back into an economic positive situation and then have to spend the money, uh, a second tranche of money in a year or in two years or wherever on the transition that these communities have to go through. It's, it's not easy, but I think you know, trying to pretend that these industries are coming back is, is not helpful to the people who are right in the middle of it.
Well, from killing the Keystone XL pipeline project to banning fracking on federal land, the Biden administration's climate initiatives are costing thousands of energy workers their livelihoods. And that makes many, for many some Republicans. And look, Matt Gates, the Republican from Florida, he believes that it is uh, real and that it has an impact um, and that he wants to do something about it. And there are many Republicans say, yes, it's happening. We can figure out what to do about it. But let's not just kill all the jobs in the process and basically take a step backwards thousands and thousands of jobs we can get to net zero in terms of energy production by 2035 not only not costing people jobs creating jobs creating millions of good paying jobs not 15 bucks an hour but prevailing wage by having a new infrastructure that this has become a race green. to the top particularly in the United States, where the discussion is sort of, we're going to protect these 50,000 jobs in the coal sector, forgetting that there's about half a million jobs in the renewable energy sector and that that number could only increase. There is a real positive opportunity for the U.S. economy. And the, the more we get into the exciting future that could come, then the better it will be. It's very difficult. It's not just a question of fossil fuel subsidies, but you don't want to be putting money into projects which are not going to be able to be viable or produce a return probably within a decade. That means that there is a pressure on a green recovery that we haven't seen before. After spending 10 trillion naira in 13 years, federal government insists on petrol subsidy removal. And tries discos rules supplementing electricity tariffs shortfalls. We have known for a while that much of this public investment in the fossil fuel industry is damaging, particularly fossil fuel subsidies, but we haven't had the political will or leverage to do anything about it. With a year like 2020 just behind us, we have both the opportunity and the impetus to change. But what does change look like? When it comes time to crack open the national wallet, where should we be putting our money to deliver the greatest long-term return? And when you've just come through a respiratory crisis, you want to be investing in things which are about clean air, as well as uh, things which are not going to give you a poor return. Multiple studies have been released in 2020 and 2021, highlighting the links between air pollution, respiratory diseases and increased mortality in COVID-19 patients. What's really interesting, however, is that in the crisis, people are doubling down on the need for clean energy. So the investment community is continuing to move towards clean and green. And you've seen no, no hesitation, and no slowing down of investor interest in renewable energy. In fact, you're seeing more. And that would indicate that I think that's where everybody believes the future is. Positive advancements in renewable energy have come alongside a turbulent time for the fossil fuel industry. The prices of oil and gas stocks continue to be highly compromised. And you've started to see the oil and gas sector continue to make really advanced leadership commitments. We're not talking about how to be less energy intensive now, we're actually talking about how to get out of oil and gas. Not only the big oil and gas super majors, it's the bankers too. Investors are turning more towards environmental, social and corporate governance investing, ESG as it's known, as drivers of future growth. A phenomenon that's taking over Wall Street, if not many investors around the globe. It's called ESG, environmental, social and governance. We saw trillions of dollars being pumped into ESG funds last year, trillions more to come. I mean, is there a sense that ESG has become the mainstream? 
there's extraordinary sort of uh, herding now going on into high performing stocks from an ESG perspective. HSBC this week put out an analysis that they thought that highly rated ESG stocks had done much better through the pandemic than others. But you're also seeing incredible move of investment away from fossil fuel stocks, a 22,000% increase in six years of the level of assets under management that are now with a clear policy of not being able to be invested in, in fossil fuels. And where the bankers go, the politicians follow. In January of 2020, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, wrote that the climate crisis would fundamentally reshape finance. And as the year has progressed, he hasn't been proven wrong. What we're witnessing worldwide is a surge of interest in clients looking to put money in more renewable components of energy. Climate change is going to impact all of society, as I but letter suggested, similar to how COVID has done that. But this is not obviously a one-day event. It's a 30, 40-year event. So I was talking to the head of sustainable investment in one of the major global banks this week, and he said to me, it feels like COVID has sped up the energy transition in people's minds by a decade. We are discussing things in a way that I didn't think would happen for another seven or eight years. That doesn't mean that every oil and gas company is pivoting. There are still significant concerns about planned coal, oil and gas projects from Louisiana to Iran. There's definitely going to be losers and laggards. In some cases, they're going to have to be rescued. This is what is known as a bad or stranded asset. So you're going to have a lot of carbon intensive assets which sit in the economy. And in some cases, you're going to have public processes for managing them out. Companies, banks, governments. This is being widely touted as the moment for broad-based change across all sectors, an opportunity provided by a complete societal There's reset. research out this morning that suggests there has been a record drop in greenhouse gases worldwide, largely because of COVID-19 and the world's response to it. So there was a moment when you know emissions came all the way down immediately, right after the lockdown in March. And then they've sort of crept back up again as economies have been turned on. And you've seen governments struggling around the world to get their economies back to work. And emissions have risen with that. It reveals that it is a systems issue. A systems issue, not one of individual responsibility. This year, with most of us barely leaving our homes, total global carbon emissions will have dropped 7%. This sounds positive, and it certainly is, but it barely scratches the surface of the sustained drop in emissions we would need for the subsequent decades. This drop, according to the Global Carbon Project, was from early April, when daily global fossil CO2 emissions were around 17% below average 2019 levels. Billions of citizens effectively locked into their homes and colossal societal change seems as though it ought to reduce emissions a touch more. If nothing else hammers home the truth that climate change is not a matter of individual responsibility, but systemic change, it seems like that bit should. What it revealed is that we need a systemic approach to climate change. We need a global approach to climate change. And that it is possible that, that, that there is an extraordinary opportunity to do it now because we're going to be spending sort of money we don't have, as it were, on, on recovery. We uh, have seen that some of the things which are dangerous to the planet and to our health, this is the moment when we could speed up their demise and put in place things which will do better for people and do better for the planet. Well, let's say you're convinced. Let's not pump more money into fossil fuels because even the people holding the purse strings are moving away from that. What next? What should we prioritise in a renewable energy transition? 
So if the first thing is to not do stupid things, the second thing then is where do you get the sweetest return? So first of all, there are enormous jobs and enormous uh, opportunity for income and growth and for getting onto a different emissions trajectory from actually investing in energy efficiency. So uh, first and foremost, buildings and the deep refurbishment of our building stock. Second after that, the IEA and the IMF recommend really focusing on improvement of the grid so that the grid is able to absorb as much renewable energy as possible and then extending renewable energy off options. And that could be solar home systems, microgrids, mini grids and grid connected renewables. It's all of the above. All around the world, governments are building more solar parks, wind farms and hydroelectric power plants Energy to generate power. Energy storage is sort of the, the last puzzle piece to come together to make solar and wind, any intermittent source, a reality for 100% of our power needs. And then you get into efficiency in transportation and really accelerating the shift to clean transportation. And that is not just electric vehicles in terms of cars, it's also trucks and buses. And it's also then the infrastructure that goes with that so that you can actually recharge much more easily than you can in some places. And then after that, you get into efficiency and the jobs that will come from efficiency in manufacturing, efficiency in textiles and things like that. And then you're beginning to do some a next generation of research and development into the technologies that will be a very big part of the clean energy future but which are not close at hand at the moment i think you're going to see well at the end of the internal combustion engine i think has already been heralded the internal combustion engine gone the literal firepower behind the industrial revolution which freed men from the shackles of manual labor that's no small boast and whilst it may not be in the ground yet it certainly has one foot in the grave in September of 2020, California announced that it plans to phase out the sales of conventional new cars by 2035 in favour of zero-emissions vehicles that run on electricity. Nor will it be alone. The CEO of Volvo Cars has since commented that by 2035, there will be a serious discussion about banning the internal combustion engine, and not just in California. It's going to be transformative. This is where it's all going to happen for Mercedes to go into that new world whether or not legislation is needed, the auto industry can see where this balance is tipping. Gas and diesel cars will still be putting the rubber to the road for the next few decades, but the end is in sight. Once, diesel fuel was touted across parts of the world as a readily available solution to increase fuel economy. They were supported by government incentives and embraced by major automakers. At the same time, hybrid and electric vehicles increasingly became for many the best new hope for providing low emission or even emission-free transportation. Electric cars are very much in America's future. We still do believe in an all-electric future, and we're using this time to accelerate uh, our work. And we believe, this let's get to all-electric vehicles This morning, Tesla announced all-time record quarter three 2020 deliveries of 139,300 electric vehicles globally. Beating and so I think it's going to be very interesting to see where electric vehicles, electric planes, electric ships, electric trucks, hydrogen trucks, hydrogen fuel cell, being used in other things uh, is very exciting. It'll be interesting to see where the nuclear industry goes. Um, there are some uh, major players putting very big bets on thorium, on smaller, you know, almost like backpack-sized nuclear devices. So 
I think that that will depend upon the social norms in a number of different countries around safety, but it will also depend on the amount of R&D that is spent on it and the extent to which public resources can be spent on the regulations and the governance around that. Good grief. The, the energy potential there is just enormous. The energy that we need is going to be mastering this fusion. And that, in particular, the one that people are very excited about is green hydrogen. You see green hydrogen as part of the European Green Deal and now part of the European Green Recovery. You see green hydrogen in the UK, you see green hydrogen, Japan, Australia, but also Chile making a big bet on green hydrogen. There's things we can do now and then there's planning for the things that will come on stream in, in the next five to ten years as well. Hydrogen fuel is an option the scientific community has known about for a while, but have only just been able to make clean green hydrogen recently. Hydrogen, like electricity, is an energy carrier created from another substance, but that substance can vary. Grey hydrogen is made from the burning of fossil fuels, but if the production of hydrogen is powered by renewable energy, its only waste product is water. This is green hydrogen, and that's the recent breakthrough. We're actually in the middle of that breakthrough today. Um, over the last uh, 12 to, to, to 24 months, we've seen probably for the first time in history uh, a, a convergence of uh, the technology readiness, not only in terms of hydrogen generation, but in hydrogen If we are serious about decarbonization, if we are serious about going into a world which has zero carbon emission, there is no choice but using hydrogen. But if this all seems too theoretical, a bit too science fiction, let's talk to someone directly involved in a green hydrogen rollout. So we are actively looking to develop an integrated green hydrogen hub in Rotterdam. So that requires quite a number of, of pieces. You really have to develop demand in sync with supplies. You've got to create the markets. And of course, that's not just us creating them. There's a huge focus on this from European governments through the Green Deal, but it involves a number of things. So developing a various offshore wind projects in the Dutch North Sea, then building a industrial scale electrolyzers in the Rotterdam area. And then you need on the demand side, a number of outlets to, to sell that green hydrogen. So you need to have stations which can provide the green hydrogen to transport initially as part of a pan-European hydrogen retail station. So that is an example of trying to create a green hydrogen hub. That was Susan Shannon, Vice President of Government Relations, Policy and International Organizations at Royal Dutch Shell, one of the world's oil super majors and the fifth largest company in the world, a company which has dominated the petroleum industry for over a century. Yet this year, they have announced a commitment to become a net zero carbon company by 2050 and have been powering up their renewables arm as they strategize around what appears to be the decline of the oil age. Shell is keenly aware of the way the world is turning, the appetite for cleaner energy, and the potential profits and losses of different scenarios. What Susan Shannon is describing here is the creation of a hydrogen hub. From electricity generation and offshore wind, the development of hydrogen fuel through industrial processes, and then some means of getting that fuel powering our cars. No small feat. On a very practical side, if you're going to put green hydrogen, you need to have, for example, cars or trucks that have engines that can take it. You need to have places where people can refuel 
Shell recently launched one of the first hydrogen refueling stations in the Netherlands because all well and good to have the product, all well and good to have the engines. If you can't refill them, then that doesn't help. And then like any technologies in the early stages, there needs to be additional support, be that in the R&D stages or where you often find technologies falling down is, is not so much in the R&D stage, but as they really try to scale to a commercial stage. And, and we, we saw a lot of focus on getting renewables to scale over the last two decades in some of these countries. So the same needs to happen for the, the technologies that are emerging today. So I think we haven't seen the end of, at, at all of the innovation in, in the energy sector. But what I would like to see is the deployment of a lot of the technologies that we already have much faster. If you talk to the CEOs of truck companies, if you talk to the CEOs of car companies, of shipping, of the building industry, of the, the people who are involved in energy efficiency, you know, we have technologies today that could vastly improve energy efficiency, that could vastly improve access to energy around the world, and we're not deploying them fast enough. We do have to sort of work with what we've already got while we invent the things that we don't have yet. Hold fire until science can save us. Well, we're not entirely in the hands of the scientists alone. Everything that Rachel Kite has just described stresses how important the government's role will be in accelerating the renewable energy transition and that the private sector, particularly in the afterglow of the COVID-19 crisis, is starting to seriously consider the benefits of greater long-term efficiency and stability brought through by renewables. And that is the message loud and clear from Shell as well. They need the supporting legislation from governments to nurture these budding industries and pave the way for their entry into the big, wide world. So, whether they are driven by calculations of profit maximisation or concern for the climate, or both, many in the private sector recognise what the future holds if dramatic action is not taken on climate issues. The finance sector, driven by a boom in ESG investing, is pivoting heavily towards investment in renewables. And, as we heard from Susan Shannon, some of the most transformative action is being taken by corporations on the front lines of climate change, oil and gas companies, those who at least theoretically stand to lose the most from climate action. How might they adapt to this changing financial environmental landscape, if at all? Might they fight greater regulation? Or will they see these changes as inevitable and push to diversify their revenue streams? Which is why Shell's target is to become a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner. We have indeed committed to being a net zero energy company by, by 2050. So there's probably three parts to that. First of all, we will reduce the emissions from the manufacture of a product to net zero by, by 2050 or sooner. So, so what does that mean? Because I understand, you know, there's a lot of jargon in this world. It is the emissions from our chimney stacks, essentially, from the actual assets that we have on the ground. Secondly, it is about ensuring and reducing the net carbon footprint, so the intensity of the products we sell by 30% by 2035 and 65% by 2050. And thirdly, working with our customers to help them reduce their emissions. In practice, what does that mean, helping your customers to reduce their emissions? 
So what we're trying to say is, look, we all need to work together, not only focus on the supply side or the demand side. So we can, you know, sell our products, but it is, of course, the, the burning of our products that causes the emissions. So what we are saying is we want to take a strong role in looking at the emissions of our products all the way from when we produce them to when our customers use them. And the first thing to understand is where there are easy wins and when more work is needed. One way that I find helpful to break it down is to look at the uses of oil and hydrocarbons and the sectors that they go into. You can already see a transition in some of those sectors. Some of those sectors are what we often call in the industry easier or harder to abate. In sectors like power generation, such as for buildings and electricity generally, we have solutions ready to go at a price tag we're willing to pay. There is a clear pathway to making our power systems very green. If, on the other hand, you take the aviation sector, there are today a a very limited, if any, range of alternatives which can fuel aeroplanes. So sectors like that, we need to work much harder at to find those alternatives. And therefore, in the coming period of time, there is a continued role for oil in, in those kind of sectors. So yes, the end of the oil age is a touch dramatic. We won't be seeing the exit of oil from the world economy for decades to come. But it does suggest that its dominance over the world markets and politics is fading. We've already talked about green hydrogen and how that is revolutionising everything on wheels and wings. Another breakthrough is carbon capture, utilisation and storage, CCUS, the process of capturing carbon dioxide and storing it so that it isn't released into the atmosphere. We have such a huge problem with CO2 already in the atmosphere that if we have a mechanism to collect it at large scale, it will give us so much more flexibility in addressing climate change. And we'll start to address all of those emissions that occurred yesterday, the day before. Good example is a project called Northern Lights in Norway, which really aims at its heart to collect CO2 from a number of, of sources across Europe. Much like a communal rubbish landfill, except for carbon dioxide. There are two types of CCUS. One captures carbon dioxide directly from the air, like the Norwegian Northern Lights project, and the other captures carbon dioxide as it's produced in factory, such as during industrial processes. We do have a project, I've actually visited it myself in Canada, it's called the Quest Project, and it captures about a million tonnes of CO2 a year. So the technology is there, it exists, and actually when you go to see it, I certainly had in my head a picture of lots of wires and pipes, but actually there is is just a a small pipe coming out of a refinery and, and into the ground. This is incredible, truly the cutting edge of the carbon cutting technology world. Yet, over-reliance on carbon capture and storage feels like a moral hazard. It doesn't really matter how much carbon we emit, we can continue business as usual, and these nifty little plants will suck our carbon emissions out of the air. Job done. But the two large-scale CCUS power projects operational today, with 20 currently in development, have a combined capture capacity of over 50 megatons of carbon per year. That's great. But to meet the 2030 sustainability targets, this would need to be 310 megatons, or more than six times its projected capacity. Carbon capture and storage is critical, but the magnitude of scale is mammoth. 
we may not have the financial resources and experts fear that worse, we likely don't have the time. So in our own projections and, and scenarios around how Europe gets to net zero emissions by 2050, you would need a huge scale up in CCS. So something in the region of two CCS plants a, a month between 2025 and 2050. So there needs to be a huge scale up everywhere. And CCUS is no exception. That's 24 CCUS plants a year for 25 years. A little punchy, you might say. This seems to be the same lesson we learned from 2020. Science might be able to save us, but unless we can provide the infrastructure to deliver these scientific solutions, we're not really going anywhere. The technologies are there. One of the main drivers around CCUS is indeed the, the carbon price, because there is a natural point at which it makes sense to install CCUS rather than to buy the allowances. This is where government comes in. If you bring in a carbon price like the European trading system that Susan Shannon is referring to now, companies who burn carbon into the atmosphere have to pay for allowances in order to do so. What Susan Shannon is saying is that at a certain point it becomes more economically advantageous for carbon-guzzling industries to build in CCUS plants than it does for them to pay for these allowances. Bingo. This is where the public and private can work together to really bring about the systemic change Rachel Kite was describing. Take gas, for example. So in many places, gas can replace coal. It has approximately half the CO2 content of that. And where gas is replacing coal, that is clearly contributing towards the need to reduce emissions. You can also see the pairing of gas with renewables, in which case you manage to address some of the questions around intermittency. There, there is a lot of areas where gas clearly has a, a very strong role going forward. And whilst it is true that gas is a lower carbon per unit energy than coal or oil, that simple fact doesn't cover some of the most concerning elements of the gas industry. Methane, the prime constituent of natural gas, is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, almost 25 times as much. Methane leakages into the atmosphere during natural gas production are common. But just how common, we're not sure, because most companies don't measure how much methane is leaked during production. This is called methane accounting, and it isn't very well regulated, because governments aren't mandating that regulation. In the US, we have been calling for direct regulation of methane emissions, and we have seen some of the regulations over the last couple of years going in the opposite direction, and Shell have, have made a commitment to keep the, the methane intensity of our assets below 0.2% over the next couple of years. One of the really important points about methane is really the reporting, the verification and measurement. So there does need to be a very clear understanding and indeed reporting of where that methane is coming from. There's an initiative called the, the Methane Guiding Principles Group, which was set up a, a couple of years ago and really works to share best practice, not only in detecting and, and addressing methane, but also in improving the, the reporting of methane. In one of our big projects in, in Qatar in, in 2019, I believe, we scanned around 33,000 components to ensure that the methane emissions were being detected and, and repaired. You might think that a company like Shell would be anti-regulation, but that hasn't been the case. 
When Trump weakened Obama-era regulations on methane emissions in early 2020, the oil and gas lobby was split. So this is regulations are going to be cut, and the potential the is would that eliminate you existing federal requirements, force big oil and big gas operations to use leak monitoring technology to spot methane emissions. It would roll back Obama-era policies that ensure such leaks at wells, pipelines, and storage facilities are not only caught but also fixed. ExxonMobil and Shell openly called for strict regulations to stay in place. Shell's president, Gretchen Watkins, said at the time the regulation helped the industry develop better, more affordable methane technology. From our perspective, it makes sense to have direct regulation. It gives us the certainty as to what we're operating to in the same way that when you set direct regulations for other issues, you get a defined outcome, essentially. And as a transition energy, gas requires a steep investment in infrastructure, pipelines that cross geographic and political borders, for example. The amount of financial, human and physical investment into this infrastructure is so significant that within a decade or two, the projects could become unfeasible, making them the stranded assets that Rachel Kite was warning us about. Yet, LNG, or liquefied natural gas, is a key component of many states and sectors in the renewable energy transition. The pace of the transition is heavily dependent on incentives and government regulations. A lot of the recovery funds and the resilience funds have a very, very strong green agenda to them. Which brings us full circle. Both ends of the spectrum are calling for governments and companies to use the opportunity provided by the recovery funds to build back better. The COVID-19 crisis has accelerated few trends as quickly as it has the movement towards green energy. Rachel Kite walks us through the mechanisms of transition, the technologies and initiatives that will yield the strongest environmental and fiscal results. Susan Shannon showed what such investment looks like on the ground from the perspective of a global oil supermajor. Science can only be denied for so long. Energy Luddites will drag their heels. Regardless, technology always marches on and we have found and will continue to find cheaper, greener, more efficient ways of existing. Many will advance, but some will be left behind and those who win must account for them. Jobs in non-renewable fields will be on the line, which will require government financial assistance and investment in job retraining programs to cushion that blow. Looking beyond the individual, this historic shift will have still unknown geopolitical ramifications. What happens to the myriad countries, such as Saudi Arabia and the neighboring Gulf states, Mexico, Russia, Venezuela, whose state budgets receive much, if not most, of their funding from the petroleum sector, when they no longer hold the keys to the car, or rather, the oil to the engine? How might their standings in the global balances of power and influence change? And importantly, what reactions might that provoke? And as the renewables industry booms, how might actors possessing critical materials, such as China, with its dominance over the minerals needed for the energy transition, adjust their behaviour? Tune in next time as we unpack the geopolitical ramifications of the death of the combustion engine with securing America's future energy founder, president and CEO, Robbie Diamond. This episode was researched, written and produced by Max Claver and myself, Elizabeth Dykstra. Our sound assistant was Rachel Karp and this was 2020. Final episode coming up.